Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, we are continuing in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1 and verses 2 to 6. So again, if you are newer to Scripture, or if not, you, it's still a struggle typically to find these uh, smaller, minor prophets. And so in the Bibles, and the seats in front of you, it's around uh, or page 788. These minor prophets mainly deal with judgment and it does so in order that we might learn the virtue of fearing God. The fear of God is always in relation to his judgments. And so for the first three plus chapters, it's just awful judgment against the sin of God's people and then sin in the world. And this is meant to do us good. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful and helpful in training us in righteousness. And that includes Zephaniah. One of the mistakes that Christians have been prone to make is to elevate the red letters in scripture. Those words that Jesus himself, when he on earth spoke, and then thinking that that's true scripture and the rest is all not as important, or somehow what Jesus said in red letters disagrees with the rest of Scripture, so we need to focus just on Jesus' word. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of Scripture. Jesus himself quoted constantly from what we would call the Old Testament and from the prophets. He treated it as if it was as much Scripture as the words that he himself was speaking with his own mouth while on earth. And the main uh, mistake in that is aimed at judgment language. Those who want to elevate Jesus' red-letter words want to do so because they don't want anything in Scripture that speaks of judgment to be true. And so they pretend in their own imaginations that when Jesus speaks, it's only nice words, comforting words, affirming words, accepting words, and they forget that Jesus often spoke words of terrifying judgment. Where did he get that from? He's a prophet. He's one who loves God's people and loves the world enough to bring conviction of sin and reminders of God's judgment that we might turn to his mercy. And so that's what we want to learn. Now, the difficulty is, of course, nobody fears God. The fear of God is rarer than a 50-degree, I was going to say 40-degree, but we have to change it, a 50-degree day in January or February, right? Nobody fears God anymore. In fact, the church exists to talk people out of fearing God. That's what we do. There's no fear of God. 
And so these kind of books in the Bible should be helpful again to teach us the fear of God. All right, here's Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 2 to 6. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Let's, let's ask God's help. Father, please give us understanding of the goodness of the fear of you according to your word. And then let us cry before you and plea before you to deliver us according to your word. Then our tongues will sing your word. And so, God, we do long for your salvation from your judgments and from your wrath. And so, God, let our souls live and praise you. We often go astray as lost sheep, but teach us to never forget your commandments and to return to you. And so, God, please bless our ears now. Amen. Just briefly, what's going on here in this text? Uh, Zephaniah is a prophet, and prophets often write uh, lyrically, poetically. And uh, Zephaniah's poetry is mainly landscape. If he was an artist, he would paint outdoor scenes. You could hear that. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Now you see these two parts in these verses. You have first kind of the worldwide aspect. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away man and beast. You you have uh, Genesis 1 in mind here. The creation order. He's going in the opposite order. He's decreating. So you start with the entirety of the earth, the whole, and then he narrows in on Judah and then even more tightly on Jerusalem. We use figures of speech like this. Um, You might say at a wedding or if somebody's asking a woman to marry him, may I have your hand in marriage? Now, of course, he doesn't mean I just want that body part. You use a part for the whole, right? You can also do the reverse. You can use the whole for a part. If you go watch a Hodeg basketball game and an individual player on the Hodeg team makes a winning bucket, typically you'll say the Hodegs made the winning bucket. You'll refer to the whole, but when in reality just one part made it. And so you're seeing that here in this text. He begins with the whole... But his judgment here is specifically on a part, and that part is his people. Why does he do that? Why do you think you do that? You do this as a parent. Your language can be hyperbolic towards your children when you don't intend that utter of a punishment. Right? 
you want to raise the effect because we are so dull of heart. We're so asleep to God's judgment. And so God comes to his people saying, listen, my judgment is coming against you. And it's going to be as if the entire world is being undone. For you in Judah, for you in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, it will feel as if creation is being uncreated. And so that's what's happening in these verses. Now, in this decreation language, we re- are again taught, as we sung in the first song, Pastor Mark picked it perfectly, God made man as the pinnacle of his creation to rule over everything. And so when we go bad, all of creation comes right along with us. And so when the ruler, the kings and queens over creation are corrupt, all of creation gets corrupted too. And even more so, God's people don't lose the doctrine and scripture of the highest dignity of man, and even more so, the dignity and worth and centrality of the church. And when man and when God's people go bad, it corrupts and ruins all of creation. Creation itself groans, Paul says in Romans 8. And so God's judgment on the whole earth because of the corruptness of man and God's judgment on the whole earth because of the corruptness of his church, his people, is right because God has knit these two things together. So this teaches us again God's judgment. Now when will this judgment take place? That's probably the main question that people have when they come to these prophecies. When? And my goodness, I hate it. I think it just takes you away from the main effect of this, which is to fear God. But let me try to answer it for you. When will this happen? Well, it happened in Jerusalem. We looked at this last week. Zephaniah's prophetical ministry, his prophesying took place during the time of King Josiah. He was towards the end of the kingdom of Judah. God had already decreed judgment on his people. He had judged them. And, and and so the judgment took place shortly after this preaching happened. God destroyed in three stages through Babylon the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. And so it it's already happened in that way. And we can continue to learn from that, can't we? God is the God who doesn't change. God is the God the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is a just God, a holy God, a God who hates our idolatry. It's already happened. And we see that the height of his old covenant people's sin wasn't yet full here. It happened when they crucified his son. Like, their idolatry wasn't enough. 
their sin wasn't yet on fullest display until they betrayed the promised Messiah. And so God, as you know, in AD 70, utterly ruined and destroyed the rebuilt temple, which had much less glory than the original in AD 70. So that's part of this too. But then we know that there is a final judgment, a day of Christ's return, when he will bring judgment on this earth finally and fully. That's not yet come. And so just very simply, if you're, when will this happen? Well, it's already happened, and it's not yet fully happened. And that's typically the way that all prophecy works. There are fulfillments already on the way to a finally full fulfillment. At the end of Zephaniah, this great news that the Lord will come and be in your midst. He's taken away your judgment. Happened. God brought them back from Babylon. They rebuilt partly the temple. It it was already fulfilled, but not yet fully. It already happened in that Jesus himself came to earth and brought salvation through his death on the cross. It's already, but not yet like his second coming, that full redemption, where he will dwell in our midst and purify this earth and we'll dwell with him forever. And the, the, the joy and the pleasure that we'll have on that day will make this day seem less significant. And so we constantly come to this prophecy already, but not yet. We learn a lot from the already about the not yet. And what's the main thing we learn? To fear God. To fear God. So what I want to do is talk about fearing God. I want to talk about the reason for God's wrath and judgment of idolatry and then get really specific with an idolatry that is common among us. I'm calling it the idol in your head. We'll get to that. And then end with some practical ways to learn to fear God. So why don't we fear God? Why should we fear God? God's judgment against our idols, specifically the idol in our head ourselves, and then practically how to fear God. So to fear God is to fear his judgments. And this is as needed today for the Christian as it was from the very beginning. In fact, think of Adam and Eve before sin. Did Adam and Eve had, have reason to fear God? Yeah, they actually did. Why? What did God tell them? Everything's yours. Enjoy it all. It's all yours, but don't eat of the one fruit, for if you do, and the day you do it, what? You will surely die. So even the fear of God before sin entered in was good. (laughs) And we're so wise today that we don't have to fear God, even though we're full of sin. Adam and Eve were taught to fear God. In the day you eat of it, you will surely tell yourself that it'll be okay and God will not be mad at you and reassure your self-image that it's all good. No, no, you'll die. I will judge you and I myself will destroy you. 
Fear me. Adam and Eve were to fear God before sin entered the world. And then, of course, we know that when sin entered the world, we have to fear God. But that's the one thing we refuse to do. We do not fear God. And here's the thing. We don't talk about this much. I don't as much as I should. And we bring our questions to this concept of fearing God. What does it mean to fear God? How much should I fear him? What about God's grace and his forgiveness? Doesn't that mean I shouldn't fear God? Isn't the fear of God just like a nice reverence of God? So you have all of these questions about this. And I think that the reason you ask those questions is merely to avoid fearing him. Your kids do this, right? They know what you want from them. It's very clear, and yet what do they do with you? Ask questions. Why? To avoid doing what you've asked them to do. And so, right away, right at the top, I just fear him. Look at verse 7. We'll get to this next week, but it's good to plunge ahead here. Just be silent before him. Be silent before the Lord your God. A lot of fear of God is just no more questions. Just tremble before him. Again, parents, this is what you want. You give a directive and your child goes, all right, no questions, no debate. No qualifications. So a lot of fearing God is just, why do you think you can question God? Now what is it about you that makes you think you have the right to come before God and question him? It isn't that you don't know what it means to fear him. It's that you don't want to fear him. But you cloak that behind questions. So, do you fear God? Maybe that's the only question. Do we fear God? When we read these judgments, is there any consideration of trembling before him? And so the simple purpose of this kind of language in scripture is to teach us to fear him. To come silently before him, acknowledging our weakness and sin, falling before him on our knees and pleading for our mercy. And so will you? That's the question. Do you fear God? Now the judgment of God in these verses that teaches us to fear him is his judgment against idolatry. That's the sin here. So again, in verses 2 and 3, you have this universal whole language that is meant to bring it home to God's people and what is going on among God's people, the reason that God will sweep them away and stretch out his hand in judgment against them is given very clearly in verses 4, 5, and 6. For their worship of Baal. And you have priests of Yahweh, idolatrous priests, who are working alongside the Idol priests of Baal together. You have people bowing down on their roofs to the stars and to the sun. 
They go so far as to just turn away from God and their idolatry and no longer seek or inquire of him because they have their other gods. And so God is a jealous God. God will allow no competitors for his glory and for your fear and for your worship. Now, when I use that language, I hope that you kind of go, well, is God that petty? Or you have some kind of like reaction against that in a sense. But do you recognize about yourself that you're like that? Husband, doesn't it irritate you when your wife doesn't honor you like you should? Real quick-like? Siblings, don't you, when you experience any kind of behavior from one of your siblings against you, don't you immediately react with a jealousy for your rightness and your honor and what you demand? Like in a nanosecond, it just, aren't we like that? And if we, who demand the respect and honor from people who are just like us, how much more God? How much more God? And you remember, when God delivered Israel from Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai and showed them his glory And gave them his law. He reminded them that he is the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a... Kids, what does it say next? I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the good news is God makes very plain what he expects of us for who he is, for his creating everything, and for his giving us life in him through his deliverance, through the blood of Jesus Christ. This law is an eternal law. He hates idolatry. Why does he hate idolatry? Because it treats things that God has made as if they are God themselves. It, it looks at an object that God has made and given you for your good to bring him glory as if that thing itself is the precious, the beautiful, the, the thing that you can't live without, the thing that gets your attention and your affection, the thing that controls you. So you give your allegiance, your heart to this thing. And it destroys you, actually. I mean, we have a really good illustration that you're all familiar with um, from the Lord of the Rings. And Smeagol and his precious. It disfigured him. In the Psalms, it says, those who worship idols become like them. Worship transforms us. Giving our heart allegiance and affection actually changes us. For good or for ill. 
We were ruined in sin. To come to Christ is to look upon him and to be slowly transformed again into his image, but to look on things that he's made as if they're him disfigures us and destroys us and each other. Okay, don't forget what their idol worship did. Do you want to see what it did? I brought up this last week, and I think it will be helpful. Look look at Second Chronicles real quick, 35. You got to go back a few pages. Second Chronicles is before Psalms. Second Chronicles 30, what did I say? 33. I have it as page, uh, 384 and 5 in those Pew Bibles. Remember King Manasseh? He was two before Josiah during Je- uh, Zephaniah's time. You read in 2 Chronicles 33-1 that Manasseh was 12 when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years. He did what was evil in the sight of God. He rebuilt the idol worship places. He built altars to the hosts of heaven. This is what they're being condemned for in the opening of uh, Zephaniah. He actually sacrificed his children We don't see it explicitly. Oh yeah, there it is, verse 6. He burned his sons as an offering to these idols. This is what idolatry does to us. We see it again in our culture, don't we? Don't we? We shed the blood of innocent children. We use women who are given to enter into a covenant marriage and build families and life-giving bodies as just objects of our pleasure. We are no different than them. Why? Because we will not submit to God as the one true and living God. This is what idolatry does to us. This is what we become. In fact, this is who we are. This is who you are. Without God's grace. Just think of it like this. Let's say God doesn't give these terrifying words of judgment. and doesn't actually pour out judgment. But he just says to us in our sin, have at it. Just He just gives us over to ourselves without any restraint, without any civil authority. And just lets us go. What would be worse? God's judgment or what we would do to each other. Have you not read Lord of the Flies? Our flesh, our carnal, our love of sin, we would eat each other alive. God's judgments are (laughs) merciful in comparison to what we would do to each other. What we are doing to each other. Now the idol, now there, there is such a thing as actual idol worship in our day. Paganism is on the rise in our culture. People do actually worship physical idols. They do worship stars. But that's probably not something that's happening commonly in your household. Like you might worship Milwaukee drills. Like you can make an idol out of anything. 
You might worship your golf clubs or your garden or whatever. So, so we can make an idol out of everything. But what I want you to consider is that the main idol in our day is you. Our day is a day that says you are God. Particularly your feelings. The, the idol of self. Right? You get angry when you aren't given what you demand and deserve. It's just you. Now, one of the main ways to see that is um, we are really good at portraying ourselves in one way when our thoughts, if they could be revealed, would show ourselves to be very different. You do this in conversation with people. You can be talking with somebody, saying nice things, and all the while in your head you're tearing them apart. You ever do that? You can see somebody who's not as clean as you would like or not as thin as you would like, and you're sweetly having a nice conversation with a while, all the while thinking, what a, why is he so fat? Why is she so ugly? Why, why that color with that color? Boy, they're not very educated. Like, you can just have this judgmental, we see this with the Pharisees, Jesus said, who came and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like. Now, we're way more sophisticated than the Pharisee. We keep it in our heads. Daniel and I were officiating a tournament yesterday, and one of the coaches didn't like that we didn't give a more severe penalty to a player and was yelling at us. And after the game, he came up and apologized to us. And then as I was walking out, I overheard a conversation the coach was having with parents tearing us apart again. That's us. That's me. That's you. We're so self-important that all of our judgments are perfect of others. But we lie constantly that we're that kind of harsh judgmental by how we talk. You have people who school different than you school and you tear them apart in your brain. Well, you have a nice conversation with them face to face. You can listen to the very word of God being preached, smiling and nodding in affirmation while tearing apart what is actually being said. We're so good at this. Why? Because I'm God. I'm the center of all things. My judgments are pure and perfect. And if only everybody were more like me. But we don't say it like that. We say, thank God that I'm a man. Thank God that I'm not poor. Thank God that I am clean. Thank God that I'm so nice to other people. Thank God that I take care of this or that. Thank God that I have this or that skill. And all that we're saying is thank God that I'm not like because I am the center of everything. That's what we're like. And what does God say? The first will be last and the last will be first. You'll go to heaven, but you'll get there last. <laughs> you're, you're the worst sinner you know. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That, that's lack of idolatry. That's removing the pretense. And so we don't fear God 
though we read of his judgment, his judgment against idolatry, and the main idol of our day is myself and my hypocrisy and my self-righteousness. And so how do we learn to fear God? How, how do you learn to fear God? Well, let's go back again to Manasseh and then to Josiah. Turn back again to Second Chronicles 33, 10. And then we'll go back to Second Kings. Remember, this is the, the current historical context of which Zephaniah is preaching against. And it's so similar to our day. They had no fear of God. So in Second Chronicles 2, 1 through 9, it builds the case against Manasseh of what he's done that's so wicked and evil and what the people have done. And then in verse 10, we read that the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. <laughs> oh, we should tremble before God's word. And so God brought the Assyrians against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains and brought him to Babylon. Like, this wasn't pleasant. And verse 12, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of the fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And then Manasseh proved his repentance by actually beginning to remove the idols in chapter 5 and verse 15. So Manasseh was able to repent. Why? Because of God's judgments against him. He feared God and he humbled himself. Will you? The number one way you learn to fear God is by hearing his word and by God bringing discipline into your life that causes you to turn and say, the Lord is God. Okay, go back to Second Kings. So it's back towards the beginning of the Bible, two books. In Second Kings 22. Again, Josiah, after Manasseh, the people still go astray. Amnon is the king just before Josiah. He, again, did everything. He abandoned God. He brought idolatry. He was murdered. And then Josiah reigns. He begins when he's eight. At 18, 10 years in, he repairs the temple. When they're repairing the temple, they discover God's word again. <laughs> and they read it in verse eight. They bring it to the king. And in verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. It's the proclamation of God's word that should teach us to humble ourselves in genuine fear before God. We should humble ourselves in repentance. Should not keep our sin in the dark. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise hearing of God's word. Wisdom is to respond in repentance for it. And so, to get real specific, how do you learn to fear God? Well, ask him. God, teach me to fear you. Sincerely. Second, restrain your questioning. Restrain your curiosity. Just give yourself to fearing him. 
Don't get so bogged down on this or that. Just tremble before his word. Now, you're, sometimes in the places of our lives that are most troubled in sin, we too quickly speak peace to those areas. We, we haven't yet really repented of, we're not gaining victory over them, and yet we're constantly saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Let, let, let that fear of God there. Let that tremble, cause you to tremble before his judgments. So be careful not to speak peace too quickly, nor to each other. This is a great fault of many pastors and elders. We too quickly apply the goodness of the gospel when it isn't yet shown if they really hate and are turning from their sin. And so we actually keep them in their sin. Because they walk away, though they don't say this, they walk away going, okay, it's okay. And in effect, what's happening is I can sin because grace will abound. Paul says in Romans 6, 1, no, may it never be. God's grace is not an excuse to remain in sin. Now, the good news of this talk of God's judgment is that if we'll give ourselves to the fear of him, then we'll really learn the freedom and rejoicing and joy that we have in him. Look at how Zephaniah ends. And the judgments of God and his law are terrifying, but the freedom of the forgiveness of sins and the welcome that we'll see at God's table is so rich and good to those who fear him that they raise their hands in worship, that they sing aloud and shout and rejoice with all their hearts, that when a child of God enters into the freedom of full forgiveness in his conscience or in her conscience before God, they don't aren't afraid of anything else then. They're so free and wild that they embarrass others with how much they love God now. We learn that there is nothing in ourselves but only in Christ when we learn to fear God. And so may God give us hearts that tremble before him. Let's uh, come before him in prayer. Father, help us to fear you. Please teach us this that we might give ourselves to it. We are in need of faith for this. We need your spirit to humble ourselves under your judgments. But God, we also need help in how to do this, that it might not be a self-centered thing. It might not be a worldly grief response, but a true, genuine humbling of ourselves before you, falling down before your majesty and pleading with you for your mercy. And so teach us this, O God. Help us to learn this. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge, there's a couple of them. Um, You're most likely to judge people quietly in yourself that are at the same um, kind as you are. So if you're a welder, you'll judge the welding of other people harshly, right? If you're a mother, how dare other mothers let their kids wear those kind of shoes within yourself? Um, And so be last, be least, 
in your area of equivalence with other people. Humble yourself before them. Second, you don't have to be afraid of others if you fear God. What can man do to you? And so do not fear the harsh judgments or criticisms of others. Um, The fear of God is enough. Third, one of the reasons people don't fear God is because those whom God has given authority on earth do not use their authority so that people fear them. I'm mainly here talking to fathers. It's true of mothers. It's true of supervisors. It's true of civil authorities like police officers or um, uh, city council men. The sin of our age isn't mainly abuse of authority, but refusal to use it. It says in Romans 13 that we are to fear the one that God has given authority. The the authority on earth is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath and the wrongdoer. So fathers, you must tell your children no. If you're troubled with their video game playing, take away the video game. And don't move. Don't let your wife talk you out of it. Don't let the argument and anger that your children come up with talk you out of it. Harden yourself against it. If your daughter is spending too much time on her phone, take the phone away. And don't give it back. Don't make a deal. Say no to your children and wives. Support your husbands in this. If you disagree with how he did it, do it behind closed doors. Do not do it in front of the children. Support him. Encourage him. Urge him to do it. That's how we teach our children to fear God. Same thing with civil authority and others. May God give you his love so that you might do no wrong to your neighbor. May God give you a heart of wisdom so that you may know the times that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. For his gracious salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. The night is far gone. May God help us to see that the day is at hand. So then, may God grant us to fear him and so cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. May God's spirit cause you to walk properly as in the daytime and not in drunkenness nor sexual morality or sensually without quarreling or jealousy. But may God place on you and may you put on the Lord Jesus Christ and so make no provision for your flesh to gratify his desires. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.